Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn with me to the book of 1 Peter chapter 5. We've been away from the book of Romans now for a few weeks. Look forward to getting back and being able to finish up our study there um, in the book of Romans, but we're taking some time to go through aspects of church governance, leadership in the church, and we're going to continue that today. I was thinking as we were singing, how great is our God? God is truly great, is He not? Praise the Lord. There's nothing that demonstrates the greatness of our God more than an issue that comes up in the Westminster Confession of Faith. As I was putting this in the bulletin this week, I was thinking about the one statement. It says this, as there is no sin, this is on a chapter concerning what repentance is, what truly true repentance is. As there is no sin so small, but it deserves damnation. So, there is no sin so great that it can bring damnation upon those who truly repent. There is nothing that demonstrates the greatness of our God like this reality that God is a God who forgives sin. Who is a God like you, it says in the book of Micah? Who pardons our transgressions. He is slow to anger. He does not hold them against us forever. No, He sent His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And, you know, we're not talking about the Gospel today, but in a crowd like this, I am sure there's some people here who need to hear the reality of the truth in the Gospel that it matters not how great the sin is that Satan keeps throwing in your face. But if you will turn from it and turn to Jesus Christ, you are saved. God is great. And that greatness is demonstrated in this. He sent His Son to be the satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. If you get nothing else and you get that today, that's better than anything else we got. Because that is the nutshell of it all. God is a great God who will forgive us in Jesus Christ. We're talking about an overseer. As we begin today, I do with this with great fear and trembling because I don't want to lose you for the rest of our time. I'm nevertheless going to ask the guys to come down the aisle and bring down a document or a little brochure that we want to give to you now at this time. And we want you to put it in your Bible. We're going to refer to it a little bit today. This has to do with church government. Specifically, the church government of Emmanuel Bible Church. And I'm not going to teach through this today, but I do want you to read it. So keep one if you're a head of a household or however you want to do that. If you're a, an older young person, uh, we invite you to, part, to, to take it, to keep it. Um, if you're just a little guy, don't put it in your, your Bible and use it for a scribble pad. Okay? They're more important than that. They cost a little bit of money to make. And um, so, you know, utilize it. We want you to read it. There's some parts to this that I want to just draw your attention to as I begin my message today. In this, we put the passage of Scripture that we are reading through currently. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. I'm going to read that text here in a couple of minutes. Then there are two paragraphs in that right-hand column about Emmanuel Bible Church and leadership within this church. Emmanuel Bible Church is a congregational church. It is governed, in essence, by the congregation. I'm going to explain more of that next week. Nevertheless, it is an elder-led church. Think about the United States of America. We the people. Right? That's the way America is. We the people. And yet, what do we the people do? 
We elect out from among us representatives that we send either to Cheyenne or to Washington who represent us and lead us. So Emmanuel Bible Church is a congregationally governed, but it is an elder-led church. These elders are chosen by the Lord. They are identified by the other elders, and they are then affirmed by the congregation to provide oversight and direction to the ministry of EBC. And then we talk about the qualifications. I'm not going to go through the next paragraph uh, here today because I want to do that later. That's why I want you to keep this in your Bible. Don't lose it this week. Bring it back next week. I do want to draw your attention to the left side of this brochure. Because as we bring before you elders who are among you to affirm to the leadership of the congregation, there are six things that they are committing themselves to before the Lord, the church, this church, and to one another. And those six things are important. And we want you to read through them. We're going to understand them together. We're not going to do that today. But I want you to take this there again, and in a minute when I really start preaching, I want you to put it away, put it in your Bible, come back to it later, read it sometime this week, go through those six questions. And then at the bottom of it, it says this, this congregation's commitment before the Lord to its elders. When this church affirms its elders, the elders are committing to something, but we are also asking that the congregation commit something back to the elders and to the Lord. And that would, in essence, be the responsibility as lined out in Scripture to submit to these men, to love them, to pray for them, to uphold them, and then also to require of them faithfulness in the discharge of their office and ministry. And that's your commitment. We'll go through that in greater detail next week. But I wanted to introduce this to you this Sunday so you could look at it, you could think about it this week, and also you can raise any questions that you might have about how we are seeing this transpire for us as a church. I want to teach some more on this, so what I want you to do is to take this and put it somewhere else in your Bible, okay? So you're not just reading it and scribbling on it today. And let's go to 1 Peter chapter 5. Let's look at this text again. We've been going through it. Um, you can look at it in your Bible. I'm going to put it on the screen because I want to doodle on it a little bit again. The Apostle Peter says, I am exhorting the elders that are among you. And he is doing so as a fellow elder, as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is yet to be revealed. There is a glory that is coming, my friend. There is a glory in the kingdom that we will enjoy, that we do not now enjoy. That will be when we are released from the bondage of corruption to sin as we now experience it. And we are with the Lord and those we love who have gone before. There is a glory to be revealed. And he says to these elders, shepherd, I want you to notice the word shepherd, the flock of God that is among you exercising, and I want you to notice the word oversight. And he says, don't do so under compulsion. Remember, we looked at these contrasts. Do it willingly, which is the way God would have you do it. He says, don't do it for, notice the word for. In other words, the financial gain becomes shameful when it is done for that reason. When we are doing it, when we are leading, when we are an elder and we are doing it for the purpose of gain, then it is shameful. It is a shameful thing. But nevertheless, the church has a responsibility to care for those who teach it. He then says, do it eagerly, not for the shameful gain. He says, don't domineer over those in your charge, but be an example. Be an example. Notice that word as well. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive an unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Now, this goes into what we are talking about in that brochure. The book of Hebrews mentions this as well, and we're going to go to those texts. 
next week and look at them. What is he talking about here? He says, you are younger, be subject to your elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And I'm going to stress this again. The garment that God wants us all to wear when we come to church is the garment of humility. We are to walk in humility with each other and before the Lord. If we are proud and we are arrogant, churches degenerate into strife and anarchy. But if we walk before the Lord in humility, both elders and younger, both leaders and followers, if we all walk together in humility toward one another, then we find blessing. And we find cohesion and harmony and all those things. That's in the text. Now, we are then talking about the structure that God has ordained for his church by which Christ, and I want you to notice that, he is the head of the church. And he desires to get his way in this church. Church governance is not about how you can get your way in this church. Church governance is not about how I can get my way in this church. Church governance is a structure that the Lord has ordained to help ensure that in a fallen world, the Lord who is the head of the church gets his way in his church. And so that's what this is all about. Core concern. Let's go back to this. I've been hitting on this, and I'm going to hit on it again because I want you to remember it. Maybe three times is a charm. Does everyone know our purpose? Does everyone know our purpose? What is our purpose? Why are we here? What is the purpose of the church? It is to glorify God. We are here for God and for his glory. That is what the church is for, the purpose of the church. Remember the purpose statement. That gets us to why. The mission is the what. Remember that? Why? Purpose answers the question why. We are here to glorify God. The mission talks about our aim. What are we trying to accomplish? What are we doing? We glorify God by building people. By building people for His glory. And we see all that in the New Testament. We're not going to go back. So to accomplish this mission, we talked about this last week. We need to be focused on building teams of ministers. That word minister is the word to be a servant, a diakonia. We are seeking to build teams of ministers who utilize not just their own charisma or their own way, They utilize the means that God has given us to build the church. God has given to us specific means by which to build people up. And those means are things like loving and serving one another, the word and prayer, the Holy Spirit's power. And so these teams of ministers in every ministry that we work together And we mutually support one another to the glory of God. What we are trying to do is to utilize God's word and prayer, the Holy Spirit, and to love and serve one another, to build each other up for the glory of God. That is the method of accomplishing the the, the mission for our teams to function in mutually supporting ways. It takes good leadership at every level, and it requires every member of the team to function as a good part of the unit, but then also a part of the whole. You're a part of a unit that's maybe a small group, maybe a part of the team that works in children's church or the nursery, or you're a greeter or an usher, all the different things that are going on. You're a part of a unit And you want to mutually support each other in that unit, but you also work for the good of the whole. We don't compete with one another in what we are doing. We mutually support. We talked about two spirits that foster division, critical spirit, a competitive spirit. We looked at First Peter principles, and we want to do this real quick again. You will notice in the text in First Peter, leadership in Christ's church is not about what position you hold. Peter is an apostle, 
The Lord gave to him what? The keys to the kingdom. He figures big in the story. And yet, what does he say? Listen to me, everybody. I'm an apostle. What does he say? I am just a fellow elder. It's not about position. It's about that posture of humility, about serving one another. I don't think it matters diddly squat to the Lord what title you hold. If we walk in pride and arrogance, the Lord will not bless us. If we walk in humility and we love and serve each other, the Lord, our Lord, blesses that. Our Lord washed the feet of his disciples. There was no task, there was no thing that was beneath him. He left heaven's glory to come here to die for us. The position in the church doesn't mean anything. It is about that humility. Secondly, it's not about personality. It's about uh, plurality. He says, I am a fellow elder with you. It's not about the personal compensation package. He says, you don't do it for financial gain. That's shameful. It's about taking personal responsibility. He says, don't do it for this, but do it willingly. Whether or not there's any money attached to it, that means nothing. The Lord cares for his people. So today, the message deals with leadership in the church. We're going to run through this pretty quick, so you're going to have to screw down your hat and stay with me, because it might get a little windy in here. I want to talk about who elders are, and I want to talk about what they do. And we can talk about this for a month, but we won't. We'll talk about it today, so you've got to stay with me. And it's hot in here. And I got a sport coat on, and that was the wrong move for today. <laughs> Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. I never wear a sport coat. Why did I do it today? Philippians 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy. Paul is writing to the church at Philippi. He says, Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ. Notice that. What a beautiful thing that is. That is Paul's favorite self-designation. I am a slave. I am a slave of Jesus Christ. He is writing to who? All the saints. When the saints come marching in, all the saints. Now, he's not saying there, you act saintly. He is talking about your position in Jesus. That if you are born again, you are one of these, a holy one. One who is set apart. You are a saint. He is writing to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including in the saints, the overseers and the deacons or the ministers. And that word diakonia means to serve. And so we could as easily say here, including the overseers and the servants, including the overseers, and the ministers. The word that is given to us in English translation is typically the word where they transliterate it and make it the word a deacon. We'll talk about that later as well. Three terms that are used synonymously in the scripture. Here you saw the word the overseer. That is this one. Bishop. Elder, pastor. In 1 Peter chapter 5, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and in Titus chapter 1, in Acts chapter 20, these three terms are used interchangeably to describe one guy, one type of guy in a New Testament church. He is an elder, he is a bishop, he is a pastor. That is then... A pastor is a Greek word, poimen, and it means to shepherd. So he says, shepherd the flock of God in 1 Peter 5. This is this concept, pastor the flock of God. Um, so you ever hear the English word pastoral? Like, you know, that was a pastoral scene. You know, you drive to Yellowstone, and there's some bison out in a meadow laying by the river. 
and it's beautiful and idyllic, it's pastoral. This is kind of this shepherdly, lying in green pasture, and then a wolf comes into the picture, and it's no longer very shepherdly, because it's anarchy and it's chaos. But, but here, you know, it's, it's a pastoral thing, and so it's shepherding. It speaks of the, math, the method and the manner of what the man does. You know, sometimes people call me Pastor Tim. That's okay. You can say, hey, you, whatever. I don't care what you call me. Sometimes people say, use this as a term, a pastor. Now, I think it's very important you understand this. When you ordain elders, these guys, you can also call them pastor. Because these three terms are interchangeable. It's very important you note that. When we take this move, you will have staff pastors. You will also have lay pastors. These three terms are interchangeable. And then a bishop. This speaks of the work to oversee. The word presbyter speaks of the man and it speaks of his age, his maturity. That's why we talked about spiritual maturity as the main qualification. Now, when we think about an elder, this word elder is the most common description of this office. This office in the church is not most commonly referred to with the title pastor. Most commonly in the book of Acts and other places, this title we are talking about, the person is simply called an elder. So it is the most common designation. It is also used in the plural in connection with singular churches. So there are plural elders in single churches. That comes up repeatedly in the New Testament as the pattern. And then as we talked about last week, this week, this simply designates one who by reason of spiritual maturity and age can provide oversight of the church and thus have a platform from which to teach God's word as an example. He is not domineering the flock. He is an example to the flock. In 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1, there are qualifications for this office. Why don't you turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Jonathan read them to us this morning. I want to make some notes on these because I think these are important as we think about this. We've already discussed kind of who he is. We looked at the three terms that are used synonymously and we've talked about that over the last couple of weeks, so we're not going to bog down in those details again. Today I want to talk about these qualifications that are given in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 through 7, and by no means do we have the time to study through them individually and dig deep into them. So we're going to get an overview of them. We're going to get the big picture. We're going to make some observations. Jonathan read these verses. Let's notice what it says at the beginning. It says, this is a trustworthy saying. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. That's the big general picture. He must be above reproach. Moreover, it is required in stewards. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, that a man be Faithful. That's another way of saying this. He's above reproach. He's the husband of one wife. He is sober-minded. He's self-controlled. He's respectable. He's hospitable. He's able to teach. He's not a drunkard. He's not violent. He is gentle. He is not quarrelsome. He is not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping children submissive. Someone doesn't know how to manage his own household? How can he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert and fall into the condemnation of the devil. He must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Those are the qualifications. That's kind of the list of what he's saying is important in the character of the man 
who is doing this work. He doesn't say he went to seminary. Is going to seminary a good thing? It can be. It can be very profitable. Does a man who is in this office need to know God's word and have been taught God's word so he can teach God's word? Yes, he does. He must know God's word well. He is able to teach. It's not a frivolous thing to handle the word of God. There's nothing that scares me personally as much as teaching God's word. And the older I get, the scarier that thing is. In James chapter 2, he says, Don't many of you desire to be teachers? For as such, we will give a stricter accounting. It's not a frivolous thing to handle God's word. My friend, it would not be a frivolous thing to do a surgery on another human being. You train for that. You take it serious. You're going to cut someone open and take out their spleen? I don't even know if can live without a spleen. Probably not. Take out their gallbladder. No matter what's wrong with you, it's always the gallbladder they take out. Right? So <laughs> take the gallbladder. But you're going to cut somebody open and take out a gallbladder? You better know what you're doing. My friend, you're going to teach somebody how to avoid eternal damnation? You better get that one right. You better get that one right. You screw that one up. And you set someone up for hell. We don't handle God's word frivolously. I don't care what level of teaching. I don't care what level of teaching. We should tremble before the word of God. When we think about teaching little children... My friend, little children, that in, in most churches in America for most of our time, most of my life, teaching little kids has been like the entry-level thing in the church. Put the dummy there. That's stupid. That is stupid. Let the dummy teach the adults. The adults can get it right. Little kids, you know, when we teach children, we are building their mindset concerning who God is and how to know Him and what those terms of salvation are. We better handle that rightly. That is why Paul says to Timothy, be diligent to show yourself approved. A workman who is not ashamed, why is he not ashamed? He rightly handles the Word of God. You handle a firearm, you handle it with care. You know it is a tremendous tool, but you know it can kill. We better handle God's word rightly. Here's some things about these qualifications I want you to notice. These qualifications say nothing about a man's past. Nothing. They say everything about what? The present. Can God use a man who was a drunkard? You bet. There are many men in the history of redemption whose besetting sin was the bottle. And it had them in the bars, and it was destroying their life. And a godly wife was praying for that man. People in the church were praying for that man, and God gloriously saved him and changed him, and he became a mighty tool in the hand of God. This says nothing about a man's past. Can God use a man who had a tremendous problem with anger? He can. Can God use a man who once was addicted to pornography? He can. This says nothing about a man's past. It says everything about who he is. 
these qualifications reveal a man whose justification is proven by his sanctification. His life has been transformed by the gospel. These qualifications, and what he is saying about this man, this person, he's not saying he's perfect. It's not saying he never gets angry. It's not saying that kind of things about his quality, his character. What it is saying is this. This is a man who, by his life, has proven that the gospel is true. He's been transformed. His life is thus an example of what God can do. That's an observation I want to make as we think about that list. By the way, none of the guys you ordain, and definitely your two staff pastors, are not perfect men. And they never will be till they get the glory. That's not what we're talking about here. What is the elder's work? Number one, to expound the word, to teach the word. Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, preach the word, be instant in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. To equip the saints, we saw that in Ephesians chapter 4. To be an example to the flock, we saw that in 1 Peter chapter 5. To evangelize the lost. So in 2 Timothy 4, he says, do the work of an evangelist. Paul tells Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. Take the gospel to those around you. So these are the core of the man's work. To expound the word, to equip the saints, to be an example of the flock, to evangelize the lost, to protect and to provide for the flock. That's what his job description is. To stand before the Lord in prayer for the flock. These are all central to the work of an elder. And what it means to shepherd. C.H. Spurgeon, that great Baptist preacher from a century ago, once said this. A pastor would do well to supervise everything. In other words, oversee. Be a bishop. The pastor would do well to supervise everything but interfere with nothing. The pastor would do well to oversee everything. That is his work. He is an overseer, but not to get in the way, not to micromanage, not to interfere with what God is doing. Now, this is a statement I want you to see. I think it's important. When you think about the men that this church ordains, the quality of elders is much more important than their quantity. You don't got to have 20 guys. The Bible nowhere says you will. The quality of these men is what is important. In other words, are they, number one, qualified? That's important. And then number two, are they able and willing? Some men are very willing, but because of health or other concerns, concerns with their family, busyness of life, whatever the case may be, other things that God has them doing, they just don't find themselves in a place where they are able to perform that work. So there has to be a sense of calling that comes upon a man where the Lord says, tag, you're it. There again, Spurgeon used to say to guys that were going into ministry, full-time ministry, he would also always say to them, if you can do anything else, do it. What did he mean by that? If the Lord will let you do anything else, then don't do this, because that's not the calling then that the Lord has placed upon you. And so there are those things. Now, those qualifications we mentioned, here's some general observations about the qualifications we read. Let's move through these real quick. Number one, some of these are moral Some of them just simply reveal basic temperaments that are suited to leadership. There are basic temperaments that suit church leadership well. There are men who are tremendous leaders in business who are not suited by their temperament to do so well in the church. That's just a reality. 
So there are basic temperaments that are suited to leadership in the church, and then there's also training and ability. We're talking about areas of giftedness. Those things are some general observations there I want you to note. Here are some questions to ask. When you think about these things that we read, and you think about the kind of qualifications we are talking about and what the Lord is saying about this kind of person. Number one, how does he respond when the heat is turned up? That's when you see a guy's character. It's easy not to be angry when everything's going well. When do I get angry? When the pressure cooker's up. How does he respond when pressure comes? In church leadership, pressure comes. You don't want a guy in that position that when pressure comes, he blows apart. When I was in sixth grade, I was at a Christian camp. There were two guys on staff, this isn't pastoral leadership, but this was in a camp, that were brothers. I indelibly remember this. Those two brothers got into a little bit of a tiff with each other, and in front of all the campers, got into a knock-down, drag-it-out fist fight. I remember that. Now, as a kid, it was pretty cool. <laughs> as an adult, not so much, right? We don't want elder meetings to fly apart in a fist fight. That does not glorify God. When the pressure gets turned up, you do not want men in leadership who, when somebody makes an accusation, because when you're in this position, people make accusations. You don't want a guy in this position who, when things aren't going well in the church, he just goes and loses it. That will not honor the Lord, and it will not bless this ministry. How does he respond under pressure? Number two, how does he respond to this one? I don't know about you, but I don't like being attacked. It goes with the territory. I guarantee, if you've been around here long enough, you have disagreed with me on some point. I get it. There's a lot of times I disagree with myself on some point. I get that. And I guarantee that there are times you have leaned over to your husband or your wife, hopefully not your kids, Maybe somebody, when you've been out to dinner, and you've been like, oh, that Pastor Tim, oh, da, 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 da. I get it. Please don't do it all the time. I get it, though. I get it. I do get it. I love you anyway, and I think you probably love me to some degree anyway, too. Right? We're family. We've been together long enough. We get our times. But you get into a position of leadership in Christ church, you will open yourself up to personal attack because you will do things and have to make very difficult calls. And nobody else will understand why that call was made. And there are a lot of times you cannot tell someone why that decision was made. Because if you tell people why that decision was made, you are going to destroy confidentiality and trust in other segments of the church. And you will hurt people. And so rather than doing that, what do you do if you're in leadership? You just suck it up and you tighten your belt and say, well, nobody's going to understand it and they're going to hate me for it. So what? They'll get over it. That's life. What does he say? If you can't stand the heat, then get out of the kitchen. So how does he respond to personal attack? That is an important thing to ask. How does he deal with conflict? There again, don't be like the two guys who got into a fist fight. Is he in control of self? Or does he only seek to control others? You've been around this kind of person. All he's thinking about all the time is everything that Jesus wants you to do. 
You ever been around that person? They get a burden for what God wants you to do. What does God want you to have a burden for? What he wants you to do. What he wants me to do. And so is he in control of self? Or is he just always trying to manipulate and control events around him and control other people? Those are questions to ask about a man's character. So here's an overview. Let's look at them quick. Number one, concerning his family, concerning his basic temperaments. Is he sensible when you have a conversation with him? I mean, is he out in left field all the time? Is he greedy? Is he gentle? I mean, this one's an important one, gentle. The kids like him. Kids can know a lot about character. What he does, he's able to teach, he is hospitable, his life is ordered. His life doesn't look like a country song. Two special cautions. He's not a novice, means he's not a new believer. He also has a good testimony in the community. This is a dicey one. I read a great article on this one. It was in uh, Desiring God Ministries this week. John Piper was talking about this one because, look, he says, you know, people in the community need to respect him. But that doesn't mean everybody in the community likes him. Because he may stand for things that people don't like. So people respect him, even if they don't like him. It's very important we understand that one. So here's some qualities of mind. Is he sensible? Is he self-controlled? Is he clear-headed? Does he, can he solve problems and strategize? Those are all important traits when we think about the kind of man that God is calling to be an elder. And that's the end. So let's close in a word of prayer. That was quite a conclusion, wasn't it? This is important stuff. You know, we're teaching. This isn't preaching, so to speak. It's important stuff. I'd say, you know, I, I, had, I was at somebody's house. I told you I was quitting, but I will. I was at somebody's house this week. We were talking about some things. We were talking about baptism. And the man there that, that I was talking with said something that just really jumped out at me. He said, strength of Emmanuel Bible Church is it's men. How many godly men are there? That really jumped out at me. This church has many godly men. Not every man who is a godly man is called to be an elder. But every man is called to be a godly man. To be a follower of Jesus, to be a disciple. This may not be a position you end up ever holding in your life. You know what? So what? If God doesn't call you to that, that's not your calling. The greatest thing that God wants from every one of us is to simply live in his will and to serve him with everything we got. And if you do that, no matter what position or title you ever hold, when you stand before the Lord, he will look to you and say, well done. Well done, my good and faithful servant. The greatest thing you can do for the kingdom and glory of God is what God has called you to do. Do it for him. Let's close. I thank you, Lord, for your word. I thank you for truth that you have given to us. Lord, I pray that you would help us as a church, that we would truly, in every fiber of our body, as individuals and as a group, that we would desire to glorify you, to make you known, to build people. Lord, as we look to the future, what you have for us as a church, I pray what you told us, Lord Jesus, to pray that you would not lead us into temptation, you would deliver us from the evil one. 
Lord, there is nothing that Satan desires as much as to destroy this work. We pray that you would put a hedge about it. Each individual that's here. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and close in worship. just pray that you would go with us this week, that your word would enter into our hearts, would change us and mold, of, mold us, sanctify us, Lord, and, um, and may we build up uh, one another, and Lord, that you would be glorified in you alone in this church, in this body. It's in our Lord's name that we ask. Amen. <laughs>